welcome to episode 23 of Let Christy Take It. Uh, I was going to say another special episode, Derek, but every episode is special. Every episode is special. Especially this week, we have a new sponsor on board, Lineman Brewery. You can find Lineman Brewery up in Ratcool um, on, on the internet at lineman.ie and all their social medias. And don't forget, if you're making your order, ask Mark and Vivian and the mention, let Christy take it. I'm sure they'll take care of you. Yeah, and actually, again, like support local and they're a nice little brewery there up in, up in uh, Green Oak, I think, isn't it? Green Oak. Yeah, so uh, yeah, support them. So today's episode was a, a cracking one for me because when 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 I reached out to Martin McAloon uh, to do the interview, never really expected him to get back. And then I, I think I woke you up there, you could have texted me. You did. Yeah. We should explain to people, that for people who don't know, Martin McAloon was the bassist with the band Prefab Sprout, a very pivotal band in the 80s. Uh, lots of amazing hits, amazing albums. Yeah, and of course, the brother of Paddy. Love song, so you know we, we speak on the podcast about um you know was any sibling rivalry, and it was refreshing to hear that there wasn't, and they're still friendly. And you know when, when we stopped recording, we we um asked him to pass our regards on to Paddy, and he said he would. But and it's, uh, Martin himself, what a great interview! What a really nice guy, and honest and refreshing, wasn't it? So we hope you enjoyed the interview as much as we enjoyed recording it. Thank you for thank you for having me it's a pleasure it's, it's a real honor i'm a huge prefab sprout fan and i'll just give a bit of background with um i remember the first time i seen prefab sprout was on top of the pop singing when love breaks down but i was out playing football and my father called me in i said quick you gotta listen to this song he said the band i, I don't get their name he said but he said it's a great song and since mm-hmm. that i was a fan as i think it was about 10. that's god oh, that's great that's yeah, great so, um, i remember I think I, rem- I think I remember actually doing that and I have this vague recollection of as I think it was in one of the rehearsals for the show and I had a my guitar that I was using on that show had a um, graphite neck so it was really heavy and as I put my hands down the, as the song faded out and we're miming and I swung back like I swung my shoulders back and I turned around and I almost concussed one of the dancers who was stood behind <laughs> and it like whacked her across the head. So I was very much aware when it came to the actual run through that I didn't do it again. <laughs> so yeah, that's what stays with me about that performance. Yeah. One of my highlights. Can, can we take you back to your, your childhood just a bit and ask you, you know, obviously growing up, what was a musical family? I mean, you've got two brothers going on to, yeah. to success. I mean, yeah. County Durham, yeah. Um, well, well. I mean, my two brothers, Paddy and Mick. Um, they're they're like me, Mick's my younger brother, and we, we all played the guitar and that. Um, but my mother could play the piano. Um, just with with um, she, but with using my hands, she, her hands. She, she the, both my parents played by ear. My dad played the piano and, and violin, and my mother played the piano. Um, and they 
had very different styles. My dad was into Mrs. Mills, uh, which um, was like a vamping kind of straddle stride kind of piano playing where the left hand's doing lots of octaves, bouncing around, playing a, playing a bottom end bass note, then playing a chord an octave higher and the right hand would be playing um, kind of octaves with the thumb and the little finger doing the melody. And it was this mad kind of vamping style of And she had a song called the um, Hammer Bama Jubilee. And my dad used to play that on the piano. And my mother was more like her, her fingers were like swings, like gliding on the surface of the water, you know. So her, 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 her hands moved like wings. So everything she played, she worked it out by ear. So she was like, her brain was like a ahead of her fingers by probably an eighth of a second, but she could pick melodies out and chords and the things that would go with it by ear. So um, my dad worked in, my dad had a garage and one of the traveling salespeople who was coming by, you know, regular petrol visitor kind of person or getting his tires done or his brake shoes done, would come into the garage and there'd always be somebody selling something. And there was one day he bought a guitar off this fella for me mother. And so she got a lesson in how to play the guitar one day and so the next, I must have been six or seven, I got up one morning, checked out the book that she'd written the chords down, and there were little, three little chord windows for A, D, and E. And so I, I just learned from that book, as she was learning, I sort of picked it up. So that was it. And then my brother nicked the guitar off me. <laughs> I know that you used to go down to the music hall sure. to buy vinyl. The music hall was the record shop in Durham, am I right? And you'd be buying vinyl. And what kind of influence, what kind of music would, you, would have been your influences there? What would you have been picking up? Everything, everything, everything from, well, we used to go in there. It was called Music Hall. And it was on the, on the just on the, where Silver Street Bridge, I can't remember which bridge it is, but basically we'd walk in there and me and my brother and uh, Mick Salmon, our original drummer, we'd, we'd, Every Saturday we'd go in there and one of us would go up to the account, this person behind the thing and ask for the, the latest record, Pudding by Prefab Sprout. And this is when we were 13 and 12. And they'd go off to scurry around looking for this record that doesn't fucking exist. And we'd, we'd have... But the records we listened to, oh, I mean, we just, we bought everything. If we read about something or heard about something or somebody mentioned it, so anything from Stockhausen to Robert Wyatt to um, Soft Machine. So you'd, you'd, you'd have, you know, John Peel um, would say something. I remember, you know, it's just, it was just a vast amount of records that we'd, somebody would mention Can or whatever the German bands would be at the time. Um, the Faust tapes, I remember getting that. I don't know whether you remember the Faust tapes, which was this, it, the, it, was, it came out, it was just after decimalization. It was 50 pence for this vinyl record that had this kind of Bridget Riley-esque hallucinogenic record sleeve that when you twisted it, you sort of made yourself dizzy. And we bought that and it was kind of German electronica from, you know, from 1972 or something, 73. And we'd listen to all of this stuff. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was just whatever we could get our hands on, we listened to and would either be able to play it or work out how to play it or just ignore it all. But it was, it all just formulated. We'd, we'd go away places, um, you know, like I remember going to Scarborough for a holiday once and it just rained. So we just went into the record shops and bought uh, John Cale and Lou Reed and these records that we wouldn't be able to play until we got home at the end of the holiday. 
but they're still there, you know, hearing Slow Dazzle by John Cale and uh, Mr. Wilson. I put that on the radio the other day, On the, I found it on uh, YouTube. Um, do you know the song? It's it's a wonderful song. It's like a, the fan, a fan's tribute to Brian Wilson by John Cale. And it's just gorgeous. And I hadn't heard it for 30 odd years and I found it on, online. And it still sounds as fantastic and as as memorable as it did then. Yeah. And can you, can you tell us a little bit about the formation of the band? Obviously, the, the two brothers being the crux of the band. The, yeah, what, and the discussion about, you know, getting on stage or, you know, or even Paddy writing songs or... Well, he, he sort of, he, he started to write songs early on. I think he realised that he um, that didn't mean anything if... There was one thing to play somebody else's songs, but he would, he, you know, I think using Jimmy Webb, I think he's probably used this before in interviews, so it's kind of easy one to say, but um, Jimmy Webb's Wichita Lineman loves the song, but what does Wichita mean to a guy from, from Witten, Gilbert and County Durham? So, you know, it's kind of, you start writing songs for yourself. And I was, I was always into his songs. So even at a very early age, I started playing the guitar at seven and it, it was just all I knew was his songs. I didn't really learn the canon of great records out there to play. I learned the songs that he would provide me with. So I was, yeah, so it was it was just totally ordinary to and acceptable to do your own work. So it wasn't a big deal. So by the time I was 13 or 14, by the time I was, I'm guessing in 1972, I'd have been 10 and we sent off a demo. I remember one night, the pair of us sat there in pajamas. Brian Eno had left Roxy Music, was setting up um, obscure records and was looking for me, for bands. And we thought, well, great, we'll sit down and send them a tape of, of our stuff. And we sat there one night playing all this daft shit onto a cassette in our pajamas, you know, two guitars and just like going through it and these endless songs. And I can still remember the songs. I can remember the opening line of the, the, the first song on it. But we sent it off to him. We got a lovely response saying, not quite what we're looking for. But keep practicing. It was one of those things. And I'd have been 10 or 11 years old. So so it it wasn't out of the ordinary to get to get rejection slips. So a, a, a rejection slip like that would be yeah. one that would spur you on. And you obviously did get spurred on. You formed a band and you, you mentioned that with Michael Sam and yourself. Was it something that the yeah. three always said, this is what we're going to do? Or did it kind of just happen? Did it just evolve into this? It, you just kept playing together? It seemed obvious. We all played guitars. We all played the guitar and I took up the bass and Mick took up the drums. And, we, you know, we didn't have a bass or a set of drums, but we knew that's what we would have to do. Um. And in the original state, I mean, we spent years doing this, but we didn't really play gigs or anything like that. We just rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed. But we, there was always that, um, I think we were trepidatious about playing live because we didn't have a singer. So we were always looking, we were always thinking, well, when we get ourselves a singer, we never really thought about Paddy as being the singer. And he didn't really think about himself. We, you know, we, we bought a PA system to go out and, to, to, to attract a singer who would come and say, oh, this band's got, these lads have a PA system, so therefore I'll join them. You know, it was, we thought that would be an attractive way of trying to get somebody, but we just felt it, we sort of grew into what we were wanting to be. Um, so yeah, yeah. It, was, it, was, it was just, we just knew 
very very early on we had the name when i was a kid so it was obvious that we we actually think we thought about changing the name to something more modern but at the same time it's like you just get used to it and it's just what it is yeah i suppose it's, it's a name that was very unusual at the time but now if you mentioned the sprouts your people know immediately who you're talking about yeah yeah it, yeah. it, it, it just becomes it just becomes the norm really yeah, I think I think I heard before that uh, you know you, you got two of the most random things you could think of to put together to come up yeah. with that name. Paddy, I mean, you know, you sort of you had a number of daft band names and stuff like that. So it was you did, you know. Um, I'm just trying to think of, yeah, all of the band names at the time were like that. They were all just two words put together: Led Zeppelin. Yeah. You know, what's wrong with that deep purple i mean deep purple actually works but you know antiques every other sentiment an antique as obsolete as warships in the baltic driving on a straight road and it never alters and the range is so late but doesn't falter you offer infrared instead of sun can you tell us about signing your first record contract? Signing the first record contract. Okay. Um, well, the, re the reality is that my brother was the only person who signed the contract. So um, the, the getting it, I mean, I, I, I started my own record label because I knew that if it was obvious, there was a, there was a kind of, there was a, I'd watched how other bands did things and you couldn't, you know, it's all very well, like you say, it's all very well starting a podcast or saying you're going to start it. You've actually got to do it. And then it becomes clear and apparent how it is that you progress that. So we've formed the band. We wanted to put out, play gigs. We wanted to put out records, but how do you do that? And it became pretty clear early on that, well, you, you, you put your own record out because then you can, if you've got gatekeepers in Newcastle who won't let you play their club because it's they're too much into the blues and you don't really fit into that, then they if they are gatekeepers, you've got to create your own, you've got to find gatekeepers that will let you in. So I figured that if we put out our own record, at least we could have a chance of getting onto John Peel's show and it worked. And the minute we got onto John Peel's show, we had um, Rob Dickens from Warner Brothers hot-footing it up to Newcastle, somebody who'd never been further than Manchester in his life north. And he's like, he's coming up here. And the only, he would he would love to have signed us, but he just signed Roddy Frame. And so he thought he didn't want to have this kind of the two things. He thought it was, you know, it was like too similar. And so, but he always remained very, very close to us in terms of advice. Um, it was almost like the, the conciliary to the Godfather in, you know, it's... um. Tom Hayden's position to Marlon Brando's in The Godfather, he kind of would, you know, give us little advice from the side. It was always very helpful. And yeah, so that became useful later on in our lives when, you know, we wanted to work. There was a point probably shortly after um, Langley Park and Memphis where we were wanting, or Jordan, where we were, we were trying, you know, probably wanting to work with other people that were um, like Trevor Horn, who produces 
but this he was signed to Warner Brothers, so we could never work with him. He was he was contracted to Warner Brothers acts only, so we could never work with him. But through Rob, who run Warner Brothers, he did allow us to work with Trevor through publishing and recording of like getting songs to other people his acts like sure and rod stewart and people like that so it was useful but there's yeah so you, you learn these things along the line but yeah yeah as fans you don't think about all these the mm. politics that goes on behind the scenes you know yeah. i mean rob was great because he, he got me um when, when prince played uh, Wembley Arena years ago, shortly after Purple Rain and probably after Parade, uh, or around about then, um, I went to a couple of the gigs and uh, had had the inkling that there'd be a party, an after-show party on, and uh, applied Rob Dickens with Brown Ale, and I got tickets and Robert Plant, or Robert Palmer did. So, yes. Did you get the meat prints in the air, did you? I didn't. We saw him walking along, and he was walking along, and we just, we just, we just watched. We just watched and learned, and yeah, he was fantastic. And he was, he was playing a Mirage, early an early sampler that was like early cheap sampler, um, Mirage synthesizer thing, and it wouldn't work. And there was uh, in the club where he's playing, there was a pillar in the middle of the stage. It was like it was like where we used to play in the Brewers Arms in Durham, where you'd have to set up around a pool table. You know, it was kind of you know you just you just play as it was. Or I think Redford Porterhouse has a, a, a like a column in the middle of their stage as well. But yeah, and Prince is sort of hiding behind the pole behind this column whilst the engineer is trying to stick the jack into the back of the Mirage and get it to work. But in the, the band are all playing, and he's like just hanging around. But it was great, great to watch him. And when he threw out his tambourine, thought that we've got this Prince. Purple Paisley Park tambourine. Nobody got it. Yeah. Um, you mentioned as, as a band playing the, cl the clubs, the Worker Men's Club in Durham, that must have been a tough uh, baptism of fire for you and hard just up probably for the road ahead. Um, well, the, the sort of. <laughs> well, yes, yes. Um, you've just reminded me of uh, the week John Lennon died. We had to play a snooker club in Durham where, and there was the time. I'm just trying to get this right. I think one of the prisons, there was a prison strike. And so therefore in Franklin prison, it was all the squaddies. And then there was this, they all came out and they were in this club and we were playing and the fight kicked off and there was glass and there was everything all over the fucking place. And yeah, and we just, the band played on. It was kind of- The crazy. Blues Brothers. It was, it was like that, yeah. We were just there just for the, yeah. But, but yes, Brilliant. super and, was long <laughs> Um When you, you released Swoon, um, you, you had the whole album recorded when, when you passed it over to them. So they must have been delighted um, to have this ready to go and an act ready to go and the music just ready to get out there and publicise it. Yeah, it was, um, it was, uh, we took, we took the, we took the tapes to, I think, three people, London Records, uh, Roger Ames at London Records, Rob Dickens at um, Warner's and Muff Winwood at Sony, who were then CBS. Muff, within five songs, he just said, I want this. I don't have time to listen to it all now, but I want them. Um, and offered us a kind of deal to Keith Armstrong, our manager there and then. Um, we 
came back and we realized that you know that's that's the deal that we want to do you could you, we could you know we could have gone on our own and tried to do it ourselves we could have done it through rough trade i think they'd there was talk of them have if we hadn't have done a deal rough trade would probably have put it out but um it just made so much sense to do it with sony and to be honest with you they 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 have there's they have kind of never pressurized us to do anything they've always just allowed us to to mosey on in our own path and there's rarely been an instance where they've come in and said you've got to do something they'll suggest things muffley would suggest things he'd say things like um well if he has this broomy accent and it's very high and so he talks like this all the time and he he, it's, it's very easy to fall into this this brummy accent, and he's he's kind of well, Paddy, if Paddy, if, the, if you know nobody's going to hear a record in the ideal environment, there'll be people, they'll be boiling the kettle, and there'll be the radio, and the car engine will be going. Nobody's going to hear us in this stereo environment, you know, and sort of things like that to get over yourselves on the how perfect is this and stuff. But um, he was always um, he he rarely came in and said something that you know he, he was he was a great he, he was a great what was he I used him as an example of um basically how to think within the music industry and it paid off if you if you put on Muff's accent and you look at the logic of things you kind of get an insight into dealing with other bands so when years later when I'm managing bands or when I was lecturing in music um Muff Winwood's the ideal template because he was he'd always take it at an angle that was logical and he was he was just brilliant like that. He'd been in bands before he produced people, he produced um God, This Town is Big Enough for the Both of Us by um Sparks, and he, I think he'd done he'd worked with all of these bands from uh well from Stevie Winwood's band with him, um Spencer Davis Group through Cat Stevens and um, all the people at Island Records. And he was he just had a great idea of how things were. So when he saw the Pet Shop Boys having hits being a certain age, he said, well, if they could have hits at their age, looking like that, why can't you? And you kind of, you know, and then you, you, you do something like, you'd, you'd give them something like, um, if you don't love me, which is kind of a, trying to do a Pet Shop Boys, trying to do a Kylie, trying to do a pop-tastic hit, just to prove that it will still only get into the top reaches of the 30. It won't get to number one because we're not like that. We are never going to be like that, but we'll do it. We'll, we'll show you what will happen. And once you do that, once you say, well, okay, this is, this is if we play your way, this is what will happen. And they go, okay, didn't quite work as we wanted it to, but, you know, Kylie covered um, If You Don't Love Me and she does a great version of it. You can tell me anything You can tell me anything I believe you of the band was, begetting, was becoming uh, 
bigger and you're becoming uh, well known. And other bands that have brothers in them, whether it's the Kinks or Oasis, or there's, there's probably 30 bands we could mention. Eventually, <laughs> I, <don't know> <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't want to mention them all, but eventually there does be like a clash of egos. How were yourself and Paddy able to kind of manage the, the, the two parts, the family part and the professional part? Um, well, I was always the younger brother. I'm five years younger, so I've always, if he's wanted to do something or not wanted to do something like not to her, I kind of back him up on it. It kind of cuts my own throat. But I think, uh, yeah, I just always have. I've always been the support of younger brother. Um, and it's, I think it's too too late to change <laughs> but it's good to hear really most, most bands that have brothers that's the sibling rivalry like the every brothers and oasis so it's good to hear that there's less support it's, well it's, it's kind of you know it's i can see his point yeah i think what he what he didn't want to do was to go out on the road and then be stuck there just writing songs about being on the road and I think he saw there was no future in that because he wasn't interested in, in writing songs like that. And so the more time he spent at home, the more time he spent writing. But the downside of that is that record labels only want 12 songs a year or on an 18 month cycle. They don't, you know, there's a, there's a promotional cycle, there's the production, there's the promotional stuff. And then there's, the, you know, and the tour becomes part of that. They don't want you turning up on the door every three, you know, every three minutes with a new record like Prince found out they don't want that they just want to be able to market the beard up their company to sell your records in 150 different territories please don't give us more fucking records so we we, we thought we were being smart we thought when Steve McQueen we'd done Steve McQueen straight after that we the leg promotional leg of Steve McQueen and we thought we'd seen Prince do I think was it around the world in a day um where he'd come out with something that was totally unexpected from the success and the rocktastic kind of acceptance of uh, Purple Rain, he did something completely different and it threw everybody and we thought that, let's do something that's so different. We'll go, rather than going into the, the next Bob Sprout as a, as a big you know, production number, let's go the opposite. Let's do something that's gonna take less time and swoon. We'll do it at home, we'll do it and we'll, we'll not even tell the record label. And so instead of, you know, instead of doing promotional jaunt in Germany and Australia and things like that, we, we hid ourselves away in a studio in Newcastle. And just over the course of a fortnight, we recorded an album and then we hand it to them and they go, but you're promoting Steve McQueen. This will have to wait, blah, blah, blah. And the years go by and then, then you start and you, you start adding demos from Steve from Langley Park to Memphis like things like Life of Surprises was never was a demo for Langley Park to Memphis years later I listened to 30 years later 40 years later I listened to these records for the first time and I've forgotten that 
half of it ever existed. I forgot that Life of Surprises was on protest songs. It's, you know, it was, it was, protest songs was supposed to be the White Album. You know, it was kind of, there was going to be no cover. There was going to be no production credits. There was going to be nothing. It was just going to be white and just like that. And tribute to the Beatles and to Prince and all of this stuff. And then, of course, the politics of it is, well, we can't have a record on there that doesn't have a publishing credit. Oh, we can't have a record that doesn't have a production credit. We can't have a record. And then all of a sudden, the only people who don't get credits are me and Neil. <laughs> Which is my little man. But yeah, I've waited 35 for a credit on that record. Mm. So yes. So that that was uh Protest Songs was eventually released, as you say. Um, but in, after Swoon, you released uh Steve McQueen, which is yeah, it's probably the prefab sprout album. And anybody who really gets into prefab sprout, you probably come via Steve McQueen or uh, two weeks ago as it was in the States. Yeah. Um phenomenal album and it's 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 a real musician's album. I'd say if you speak to any musicians, I'd say there's a good lot of them who would say they're influenced by that album. Sort of those are the records that kind of form people. And I think there's lots of people come to us via Steve McQueen who were that age when it came out. Similarly, every one of our records has a similar thing happen to it that if they come to it, that becomes their favorite record. It's it's a strange one. I don't know whether everybody every band feels like that, but you, you can tell how old people are by what their introduction to us was. And it's... It, was there any pressure to change... I know you've changed the name of Steve McQueen for the US release. Yeah. Was there pressure there from the from the record company or was it something that you guys talked about yourselves? It was It was. We, it was very, very quick. We were, we were recording a TV show in Carlisle. I can't remember what it would be called, but um, it would have been some promotion for Steve McQueen and message came through that uh, I think the record company were a bit scared of you know legalities in of, um, litigation from the estate of Steve McQueen we need another title for it we need another name for it um, I think I said two wheels good four wheels bad and it was just like yeah two wheels good and so Paddy just said two wheels good it was like it was it took place in the in a in a probably five minutes of thought in a um, in a dressing room at a TV studio and I think we were filming something in Carlisle because I I'd got the train over that morning and it was a very slow train to get there but yeah it was um yeah and it was over and done in an instant now the reality is that I don't think there was ever that that Steve McQueen's estate were ever that bothered even if they knew about us I did get in touch with Steve's one of his wives uh, nearly years ago a few years ago and she was very gracious and very nice and so I don't think there was ever an instance where there was litigation it was just fear of it yeah and yeah. how did it feel uh, working with Thomas Dolby like how did it feel like the change of your sound was it natural were you happy to go along with it initially yeah, we, we got him in because we knew he could do what we'd always wanted to do. We we the the we played guitars. Me and Paddy have always thought we the way we play guitar has often been to impersonate a keyboard. We've got this little chord. Hold on, I've got one here. Hold on a second. So um, I don't know whether it's in tune. I haven't picked it up this year, but but um. So little things like if there's on the song technique, there'll be bits that go. 
and what my hand's doing, I don't, oh, you, you're on Zoom, so you can see what I'm doing. But, so we, we played the guitar like that, so it's, and it's our little chord for when we get proper instruments, we'll have a keyboard player that does. And you kind of, you're pulling the strings up. So it was like everything that we wanted was always about um, chords and music and keyboards. We just didn't, we couldn't afford keyboards. So it was kind of, Swing was made with a, a GX 3P synth and um, which was cheap at the time. And um, I think the guy, John Anderson Turner, who was the engineer at the studio, Palladium Studios in Edinburgh, uh, I think he had a, a, a couple of keyboards that we used, a, probably a Rhodes of some description and things like that, but we weren't keyboard players and it's something we've, we had to learn. I could play I could play the piano, but yeah, my brother sort of, um, oh God, listen to that, there you go. Um, yeah, so it was, so Thomas coming on board, we knew, we, I'd, I'd heard him, I'd heard Thomas interviewed on, Kid Jensen's show, David Kid Jensen on Radio One years and years and years and years ago. So Kid Jensen was a big fan of Thomas Dolby. And I'd listened to these interviews that he did with him. And I didn't know much of his music, but I knew what he was into and what he liked and all those kind of things. And there's the care he kind of took on describing what he was into. Um, and then when he did this, uh, I think it was the round table and everybody slagged us off. I think Kirsty McCall slagged us off and uh, Mary Wilson slagged us off. And um, it was, and Thomas just said, you know, this is great. Actually, I love this record. And we just thought, come on, let's, let's go after him. And uh, he just, he, he, he liked what we did. He loved our Paddy's songs. And he was all, he was very, very um, encouraging. He was encouraging of me. Um, he, he really, really sort of like, treated me well and was lovely and has been for the last 40 years and he's lovely with my younger brother Mick as well he's sort of like he's he's a friend and uh and we know the family and it's kind of beyond beyond the music thing it's kind of yeah there's a there's, there's a bond there that's not just the the business side of it um so yeah albums um, a band's salt is playing live do you prefer playing live I, I i like playing live um yeah um but but yeah but i had to give that up really didn't i i didn't really have a choice in the matter and um, well i could have had a choice but it wouldn't have done me any good because i think the records would have become a bit less interesting a bit less um Unique. When Paddy was playing live, and when when he's were gigging, what yeah. was the like? Um, was it a tight fit? Like, did you did you give it two hundred and ten percent? I'd love to know. I've never got to see Prefab Sprout live. We go to a lot of gigs, and we. I think I think we we always we we'd rehearse as a band. Um, you can. Always 
never get so tight as a band in rehearsals. You don't, you, you, you can, it's like, it's like being a professional sports person. You can practice your tennis strokes or whatever it is that you're doing forever and ever and ever. But until you've played in a game, you don't know quite what you're capable of or how much better you will be after 10 games. So it's always, you know, you learn when you're actually playing, you become tight as you play. We never did a massive, massive tour, which would have been lovely because we'd have, you can tell the difference between our first gig and the third gig and the fifth gig. You, you, you're improving so much more than you ever did in the three months you were, two months you were rehearsing. Um, so it would have been lovely to do that. We never got the chance to do that. But at the same time, you know, you, you can't spend your life regretting those things. Um, the, but, uh, but yes, we, we'd, we didn't want to create, we didn't create the records we were never interested in that. There was, the records were a, a kind of, um, these are the ideals. And the live performance was much more about um, just getting the songs across because the songs can work without the production. And I think that's that's the beauty of what we did. So if I was to play, you know, I mean, I mean, I'm clear, I've got this, but. You know, it's it's kind of there's. I'm playing the wrong fucking guitar. Sorry, um, <laughs> but um, you can see this song still come through even on an acoustic guitar. It's just some days I'll just. Still means something to people. I can see yeah. you smiling on Zoom, but I'm uh, it's, yeah, <laughs> you, you, you kind of it takes you somewhere, and it's slightly different. And you know, you've got a bearded fellow with long white hair, and you think to yourself, and there's a little bit of your brain just goes, oh, it's, it sounds like the real thing. So you know, you kind of, I, yeah. I, I kind of like, I like, I, I like, I like the um, the back to basics thing. I think I, I was never that bothered. I think once you do the production thing, you do get an inkling for, yeah, but let's just do it yeah. without the computer, without all of that. And let's just do it as with the keyboard and guitar and stuff. Yeah. It's brilliant that you play a little bit of uh, Bonnie there. Uh, oh, I recognize it. Uh, it's straight away the first thing. I'm one of them nerds at the gig, claps on the fourth chord. All my life in a tower form. Shaded feelings, I don't believe you When you were there before my eyes No one planned it, took it for granted I count the hours since you slipped away The thing for a band, like you, you guys put the songs out and then other people adopt them so you put your children out into the world and we adopt them in and they become different things to everybody yeah, they're, they're no longer they're no longer mine yeah. they kind of i only I, I kind of have ownership of until the day of its release yeah. then it becomes yours and your memories become the focus of those records not mine and everybody's got their own records and uh, own memories and and i mean it's it's lovely and it's heartening to hear that people have such attachments to those songs it's fantastic and you know i'm forever grateful that they do um it's it's wonderful it's a wonderful 
tribute to the songs and to what we did. I do feel proud of what we did. Um, and I, I love them all. I don't have a favorite. I don't, it's kind of my, my real favorite is the next one. I'm still, I'm still waiting to, for the next one. It's kind of, that's what keeps you going. It's kind of, well, what's, yeah, but what's the next one going to be? Because that's going to be my favorite. The, the prefab sprout body of work, it's, it's the soundtrack to people's lives. So, you know, it, it, I know. As every song invokes a, a, a different memory, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's lovely. It's lovely to hear people say that. Um, sometimes you forget. Sometimes you forget that you ever did them. Yeah. It's, it's strange. It's, and for years, for 20 years, I didn't listen to any of them. I kind of just avoided them. And it's only in the last 18 months, two years that I've put them all back on, started listening. You go, oh, God, right. Yeah. That's funny. Um, when, the, when the first lockdown was lifted in Ireland, myself and my wife went out for a bite to eat just at Hill, was up to a local pub. I live in this kind of smallish village up Brack Hill there. We went up and we were sitting out to eat our dinner and goodbye Lucille come on. And I said to my wife, Jesus, look. And it was down in the background in the pub, like amazing, like just to hear you know, to hear you. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. I'll put the guitar down. Martin, <laughs> <laughs> well, we could sit here, we really, really could sit here and talk about music all night with you, right? Yeah. But we want to talk to all about um if you can, Felix Copa. <laughs> ah, my best mate. Um, yeah. Um, well, Felix is uh, is in the room with you now. He's uh, he's right here. Um, yeah, it's um, it's me being an artist, a visual artist, and um, and trying to do something that I want to do. And but. I think I think the one thing I wanted to avoid was being the bass player out of Prefab Sprout doing his art because I think I just I just despair when I see people in bands doing art. It's kind of you, you kind of go, oh right, so you've bought yourself a Polaroid uh, camera and you know and and yeah and you're gonna you're gonna serve prosecco. Um, so I kind of I just thought oh, it, it was a it was a the concept was I've done all the pop production work. I've done all the pop records, the Langley Parks to Memphis. I've spent the, you know, the last 20 years or 30 years, whatever, doing those records that are high gloss records, big production values. And I wanted to do something that was like demo form. I wanted to do, like I was saying before, the live version, the guitar version, the acoustic version, the black and white version of life. I just thought, and the, the quickest way to do anything is to do it yourself and to do it as an artist, to do it in black and white and just to draw things. So I started drawing. I'd always drawn, but I just thought if I eliminate the idea of colour, if I eliminate the idea of production, and just do it pencil on paper or pen on paper, it would be the shortest way of doing things. And I set myself a target of doing a drawing a day for a year um, on a theme knowing that at the end of that year, I would have a body of work. And I've always wanted to do it, but it's that thing of starting a podcast like yourselves. What are we, if we're going to start this week, we have to do something next week. We have to commit to it and we have to go long-term at this. We can't just have it as a pub idea and let it dwindle away, follow it through. And, and, and I think now, I think that with COVID and lots of people being 
made redundant. I've been made redundant from the job that I was in in December. Um, but it's given me a hell of an impetus to take Felix Culpa further because I don't have the opportunity to whilst I was working. Life's not complete till your heart's missed a beat and you'll never make it up or turn back the clock. Park to Memphis and we'll probably uh, just talk a little bit about that because we couldn't skim over that to get to your art but when when you release that the song uh, The King of Rock and Roll do you find that it's like a kind of yeah. a weight around you's our neck that that was such that was the, the biggest hit and everybody recognised you as that and that was, wasn't really what you were although at the time it was of course when you released that um, it was always the tongue in cheek um, it's you know the, the lyrics are fantastic um, I stand by the record uh, it's kind of it is what it is and yep it's saying it's saying you put out these crazy three captioned pop songs in your youth and in your dotage you're going to be held up for account for this and you kind of go yep but we knew it then and that just it just makes me laugh I kind of I like playing it um, on the guitar as well. <laughs> I like ruining it on the guitar as well. So yeah, it's just it's it's a it's a good song. It's like solid. It's meant to be a, a ridiculous chorus, and this, you know, it's yeah. it does what it says on the tin, really. That's a really you know, good song. Proud of it as much as yeah, yeah. You put it on your toes, it's, it's tap red. I mean, hot dog, yeah. jumping frog, jumping frog, Albuquerque. <laughs> you know, get it on. Get it on, bang a gong, get it on. Yeah, 100%. It's yeah. that, it's that. Just, there you go, there you go. The dream helps you forget. You win. To me, lyrically, uh, Cars and Girls is, is I, I love the lyrics in Cars and Girls, you know, life's no cruise, we're a cool chick, too many people feeling car sick, it, it hasn't been topped in pop music, what a, what a line. Oh, well, well that's, uh, I blame my brother for that. <laughs> he, he takes the blame. <laughs> I think soon, somebody asking him about his heroes, and he was talking about Stephen Sondheim, saying that there's if whenever Sundown wrote a song, he'd if the sentiment was um saccharine, he'd have a saccharine theme, a saccharine kind of sickly musical element to it as well. If it was a bitter song, it would have a bitter musical flavor to it, and it's that it's kind of you make a song, the song has to work musically and lyrically. So, there are songs where um. Where where it the 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 sacred nature of it may be off putting, but it's there for a reason, or you know, and he always tried to to weigh up the music to act 
in the same way as the lyrics or to act in as a foil to the lyrics. And he's always stuck with that. And he, I think that's been his goal from day one. I think he liked that. Um, yeah. Brilliant. Well, Martin, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Thanks so well, much for agreeing to do this and giving up your Thursday evening. No, it's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm about to walk home. <laughs> I've got, I don't know. I hope there's not a curfew. <laughs> I don't know. What's it like in the UK now? Uh, it's just fucking shambles. Yeah, it's, it's the same. And yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Big government. Look at us now. Some things hurt more, much more than cars and girls. Just look at us now. What adds up the way it did when we were young? Just look at us now. Some things hurt more, much more than cars and girls. And for him to play a couple of songs live, and we, we've left him in the cut because uh, he just picked up the guitar. So he I have a guitar. He hasn't picked up the guitar in the years, and the guitar was out of tune. Yeah, and he just picked it up and he uh, started strumming away. So uh, we weren't going to stop, so we left it in. So it was absolutely brilliant. You know, we never got to see Prefab Sprout live because um, they stopped kind of touring and promoting quite early in their career. So uh, that's the nearest we'll probably ever get to see him. Yeah, we just want to take this moment as well to just to thank everyone who's been sharing our posts and liking the podcast and also entering the competitions um, every time you do that it just increases our awareness or our, uh, our scope of people listening in so thank you and yeah and the feedback we're getting back and we're you know everything's welcomed and we're only getting positive feedback but we accept any kind of feedback um, so please keep it coming up and any guests uh, that you'd like to see on we'll do our best to reach out to them uh, movies music anything you want covered uh, just reach out and let us know drop us a line on all the social media and We'll definitely do something or go back to you. And as always, we want to thank our sponsor this week. It is Lion Man's Brewery. You can find them on Facebook, online, Instagram, Twitter at lionman.ie. And if you want to make an order, just mention let Christy take it, and I'm sure Mark and Vivian will take care of you. We really, they've been a great support to us, so thanks very much. Okay, uh, take it easy. Till next time. Just night, we let the stars